Hey everyone, this is a trigger warning for this episode, as themes of sexual assault and self-harm are discussed. In a world where mental health problems are used as common tropes in various forms of storytelling, therapist Ryan Engelstad and executive producer Mike Graham try to determine what lines up with real life and what is just exaggerated fantasy. Listen as we delve into the fantastical tales told about mental health in books, movies, and television. This is Pop Psych 101. Welcome back to Pop Psych 101. I am licensed therapist Ryan Engelstad here as always with my co-host, executive producer, and silent Mike Graham. Oh, this is nice. I can just kind of sit here by myself and this is what it would be if the podcast was by myself. I like it. Boring. That's what it would be. <laughs> Boring. All right. That well, was intolerable. Well, I, I I thought it was kind of peaceful, but <laughs> but that was also what it's been like for our listeners for the past what two weeks now. Yeah, because yeah. we did not put an episode out last week, Mike. We didn't. We didn't, and it was uh, actually not a, a planned out decision. We just sort of happened. Yes. So apologies to our loyal listeners. It was not planned, but as things tend to happen, I had a crazy. I, I you know I got checked out by the doctor. I wasn't. I didn't have a virus or, or a bacterial or any kind of infection, but they, they claim it was all allergies, but I was, <laughs> I was knocked out like something awful. Yeah. He texts me in the morning is like, I'm not feeling good. And then I was like, Oh no. And then later in the night, he's like, yeah, there's no way. There's just no way. So. And honestly, like, I'm, right. I'm still recovering The I have this like crazy ear congestion thing. So <laughs> You know, if it of feels course. like I can't hear you or I'm not responding to you, it's it's not like it usually is because I'm not listening. I just can't hear you. So, But you know what? It's okay because we started this podcast late September and released our first episode in October, and we haven't taken but one week off before that. That's right. And that was a holiday. So, so, like, so we are workhorses. Yeah. So I think <laughs> that's pretty good. And and speaking of our, our consistency, so one of the other things that happened since we last published an episode, which was Rain Man and Autism, was we got some feedback, Mike. We did get some feedback, and absolutely. Some, some much appreciated feedback, because as we mentioned in that episode, neither of us were particular experts in that uh, topic area. And we said some things that a, a couple listeners wanted to share their thoughts and opinions about you know, their own personal experience with autism and why they had some, some feelings about how we were describing it. Yeah, they did. And that's kind of why we set it up in the last episode was that, you know, for me, especially like complete ignorance coming at this in a way of questions and not trying to offend anybody. And both of the people that did give us some feedback were still appreciative of what we do, but they had to clarify a couple of things that they thought we should know. One being that when we started promoting the episode, we were promoting a website that we were unaware was kind of not really looked great upon uh, in the autism community. That's right. And so, you know, we immediately went and took all those posts down because, I mean, that's just one of those things you just don't know out of the gate when you're an outsider like that. That's right. And the other thing that I wanted to address was that we were um, given some feedback 
around the language we used about, you know, whether or not autism can be cured. And for people within the autism community, you know, even talking about a cure is sort of hurtful because a lot of times they don't feel like they need to be cured or that they, they are looking for a cure, that they see themselves as neuroatypical. They just think differently and that they don't need to be cured. Um, they don't need a pill to fix them, that they are just uh, unique. And that uniqueness is is something that they live with, uh, oftentimes with pride. So yeah. Um, so that's something that, that when we were talking about it, I think we were talking about it from the perspective of like the outsiders from society, you know, questioning if there's a cure and things like that. But certainly by no means did we mean that people with autism are necessarily looking to be cured. So yeah, so thank you so much to our listeners who shared this, some of their experiences with us and gave us that feedback. We are always eager to hear people's individual experiences, whether they just want to send us messages on our Facebook group or over Twitter or leave us messages on our voicemail line. We, we love any and all feedback and we're happy to make corrections because that's part of the conversation we're having here on Pop Psych 101. That's right. And if you do want to join the conversation, uh, the best way to do that is to go to Facebook and search out our chat group. And that would be Pop Psych 101 Mental Health Chat in the search bar on Facebook. And I think we should start talking about Speak. All right, let's get into it. It happened. There is no avoiding it, no forgetting it. No running away or flying or burying or hiding. Andy Evans raped me in August. It wasn't my fault. He hurt me. It wasn't my fault. I'm not going to let it kill me. I can grow. Today we are covering Speak, the graphic novel, by author Lori Anderson and illustrated by Emily Carroll. Speak up for yourself. We want to know what you have to say. From the first moment of her freshman year at Meriwether High, Melinda knows this is a big, fat lie, part of the nonsense of high school. She is friendless and outcast because she busted an end-of-summer party by calling the cops. So now nobody will talk to her, let alone listen to her. Through her work on an art project, she is finally able to face what really happened that night. She was raped by an upperclassman, a guy who still attends Meriwether and is still a threat to her. So, Mike, we, we decided to do the graphic novel in part because it was suggested to us by your wife, actually. That's right. And she's read the book and the graphic novel. And I think in part she she suggested the graphic novel because she knows my history with reading. So it was, she knew it'd be easier for me to look at pictures. Fantastic. Well, we'll have to to pick out some uh, Dr. Seuss books for you then. Yeah. Hey, man, I probably. Yeah. Yeah. There's probably some stuff there to cover, too. Uh, there is. Don't think I haven't thought about it. So, so, yeah. So we have this graphic novel. And actually, I was really excited that we decided to do a graphic novel because not that we don't have active imaginations, but the way that things like depression or or negative thoughts can be depicted on a page in pictures is always really interesting to me. So having the really cool illustrations with Speak here was um, just really interesting, you know, to no, see. I thought it was, I thought it was impactful. The yeah, way, yeah, for sure. Uh, Emily Carroll did that. She just had this way of, of building the story up. Uh, it felt like it would just get faster just with the mm -hmm. way she was drawings, like, 
some of her drawings would start creeping from one page onto the another, like when it was going to a more dramatic part. And then before you know, like that last page is taken over by that first illustration. And that's usually like like a climactic scene. So I thought it was very, very well done. Yeah. And, it you know, obviously this is about a girl in high school. And I felt like the the depiction of high school was really on the nose, too. And maybe that's because, you know, this original novel was written in 1999 when I was in high school. <laughs> I said the same thing. I was like, this is high school. I was it like, did. this it really, really did. gets yeah. high school. It, feel like, it felt like high school. So, so that was cool. And I'm sure we'll talk about that over the course of the rest of this episode. But yeah, so, you know, obviously, you know, this story centers around uh, Melinda and the sexual assault rape that she experienced and the sort of fallout from that experience. Right. And so this is this is going to be obviously this is going to be a, an intense discussion. So yeah. trigger warning for anyone who has experienced um, anything like this. We are going to be talking about you know some of the details and some of the the traumatic experiences that came before, during, and after this experience for Melinda. Yeah, and I have some pretty strong uh, feelings about this kind of stuff. So if I get a little riled up, uh, you know, Ryan, you can tame me back down. <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this story, it starts uh, basically at the beginning of high school for Melinda. Out of the gate, you don't know yet what has happened, um, but you get the immediate feeling that she feels like an outcast. Uh, she goes into school feeling like everyone's making fun of her. There's some light the, bullying, yeah. Yeah, and one of the first things that happens is she runs into who she calls her ex-best friend, Rachel. Who now goes by Rochelle. That's right. By yeah, the way. She's, yeah. she's hanging out with all the, the cool... Very like, cool kid. Yeah. Super cool. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so we, we just get this idea that we have a, a girl who's having a hard time in high school at the beginning. She ends up... She does make a friend uh, named Heather, who's like the opposite of her. And when I say the opposite of her, that's because what we start seeing as we go through the beginning of this book is that Melinda isn't speaking like almost ever. Every once in a while, she'll say one or two things, but she's basically not speaking at all. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think that's kind of a good place to jump off and and kind of figure out like what's going on with somebody in school that's just completely withdrawn and, and literally not using words. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it would be a, a certainly a clear sign for, let's say, a guidance counselor or a teacher or a parent that if your child or student literally is avoiding eye contact, avoiding, you know, social interaction to this extent, that that would be a clear warning sign that something was wrong. Now, it doesn't mean that, um, like, worst case scenario, as we have in Mel's case, that, you know, that they were necessarily assaulted. But certainly there are signs enough here, even for the casual observer, that, you know, Melinda's mood is is pretty low. You know, she's not interacting. She's avoidant. You know, her grades are bad. We know that at the outset. So there are some warning signs here that that people are starting to pay attention to. And it's it's getting attention, but maybe not the attention that Melinda needs. I mean, in looking at this through the lens of the fact that we know from a little bit later in the book that she was raped. It, uh, is that a common thing for men or women alike that have that kind of assault happen to them? Do they shut down like that and and just stop communicating with people? 
Yeah, so this this sort of emotional response to this intense event, um, it is common because if you think about mm. that experience, as much as we don't want to have to think about it, it's it's complete control being taken away from you. Um, it's complete autonomy being taken away from you. And we also know that the perpetrator is in school with her. That's right. And he's a popular guy. So you're going into an environment every day where someone who assaulted you, who who took away, you know, everything from you is there. And maybe sometimes you know where he is and sometimes you don't. And he does sort of sneak up on her from time to time. So she's terrified. Yeah. So the the not the not speaking is really coming from a place of, you know, both depression and just like constant like hypervigilance. Okay. So, so like on alert. Yeah, on alert constantly. And and we can see throughout the course of the book that, you know, events here and there do start to trigger her. So she starts to kind of pick her spots and find places. She even creates this little like cave in a closet for herself where she can be kind of safe and she can be herself. So this is common in, in victims, um, you know, so I should say survivors of sexual assault in right. that they they have to kind of recreate an environment in which they can trust. Um, and right. if, they, if they don't find that, then it becomes really difficult to get the support they need. Uh, would you consider like this is their first attempt to cope? And to add to that, is this something like that, the actual not talking, is this something they're doing that is not like voluntary? Like they don't even kind of realize that they've stopped speaking as much as they used to and that kind of thing? No, I'm sure that Melinda realizes it. And the other factor that we should identify here is that Melinda did try to speak immediately after being assaulted. Yeah. She called the cops. Yeah. You know, this is, and this is something as you and I have been talking, that is not something the survivor always does in this case. You know, a lot of times there's, uh, there's fear and there's anxiety around, you know, getting the police involved, telling someone, telling a friend, telling a family member, anything. A lot of times the immediate response is, is silence and fear and sort of that that frozen in place, like, oh no, what just happened? What do I do? But Melinda immediately calls the police. And part of the reason that she then goes into silence is that, you know, she calls the police while she's at this party, the police come, and then the party's broken up, and there's actual consequences for a lot of people at the party. Um, right. So that's part of the reason why she's then bullied in this, her freshman year of high school, because she's the girl who called the police at the popular kids' party. So when she used her voice... Not only did it not result in consequences for her assailant, but it resulted in consequences for her. And that's just the worst case scenario um, for a survivor is if you do something to to take care of yourself, to get help, to get support, and it backfires, I mean, all your trust is broken. All your willingness to to seek help or seek support for this kind of event is, is really just completely thrown off. Yeah, it's because this story ends up being also a story of abandonment in a way. She's abandoned by her best friend, and then she goes into this depression, not speaking. Her grades start dropping. She starts not sleeping. I mean, like every key depression sign is here. But so she's she's abandoned by her best friend, but she also is kind of abandoned by her parents as well when like she feels like she needs them most. And whether or not, you you would put out an argument well she hasn't told them her parents don't notice they don't notice that there's something terribly off with their daughter that i mean instead of seeing her 
because she was a B student the year before her rape. And now she's a D and dropping to an F student. Mm-hmm. Over the course they, of the book, yeah. Yeah. And instead of seeing and going, what is happening with our 15-year-old daughter? They're saying, uh, you're going to be grounded if you don't get your grades up. That's their reaction, screaming at her, right? Uh, at one point in the book, she gets to, I mean, she's so frustrated with everything that's happening. And um, she has this friend named Heather that she makes who actually ends up dumping her for another group of friends. And at that point, she's just all alone and she starts scratching herself on her arm with a paperclip. Yeah. So the sort of first early signs of self-harm, I mean, that is by little definition, self-harm. Right. And she acknowledges that it, it might not be a call for help, but it is like a squeak or a whimper, right? I don't remember exactly yeah, what the word that whimper. she uses. Yeah. But yeah, and, and it absolutely is. You know, she she knows she needs help. She knows she needs support. She knows she needs to tell people. And over the course of the book, she, she sort of gradually builds confidence in being able to do that. You know, things like her art teacher who's supportive help. There are a couple of friends that she sort of gets along with and she starts to see that you know, she can speak up for herself. And so so there's gradual growth over the course of the year for her. Yeah. But but even yeah, even when she does that, she, like, as you said, with her parents, it's still this this absence of support. And I, one of the things I wanted to yeah, point well, out hold on right there, Ryan, like when she did that to her arm the next morning, she's eating cereal and her mom walks by and sees it. And this is one of the only things that her parents notice during this whole thing happening was the scratches on her arms. And her mom looks down continues walking and says, I don't have time for this. Yeah. And I mean, how are you going to tell anybody anything? Right. If, if that's, you know, the, the closest Mel came to showing her parents she was struggling and that's the message that she gets, you know, it, we can't be surprised that she doesn't come out and tell them anything else, you know, sooner or later in this story. Um, so it's really sad for me that her parents are sort of so results focused and grades focused and get your grades up. You know, you're better than this. We know your best is better than this. All these sorts of messaging. Um, and meanwhile, on the inside, she's, you know, crying out for help, as she says. You know, for me, when I work with families, you know, or I work with kids, the parents come in, they might say things like, you know, their grades are failing. And that might be one of their goals is like, I want them to do better in school. But realistically, for me as the therapist, I'm aligned with the patient, with the kid in this case, if I was seeing someone like Mel. And, you know, I'm sure Mel on a certain level wanted to get her grades up too. Like that's something she's not happy about, but right. it's also not the most important thing for yeah, her. Yeah, she's not worrying about that right now. Right. In fact, it is it is a mechanism to scream out, you know? Just like, please, somebody notice that something's wrong. Yeah. Uh, so I was wondering about the speaking thing. Melinda goes through this most of the book without speaking until she gets to the point where she can, which is, you know, we'll get to talking about that. But for you, you saying that this is a realistic thing, uh, a reaction. I don't know how common of a reaction, but ha have you dealt with someone that was having problems verbalizing after an assault of any kind yeah so and not 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 necessarily like speaking in general but really this idea of self-advocacy of being able to both identify your feelings and your needs that come with those feelings mm. so like in a, in a case like melinda if she's 
depressed? Does she want to be in therapy? I mean, that's one of the things that we actually don't see in this story as, as compared to some of our recent topics that we've covered. We don't see Melinda in any sort of uh, therapeutic environment, uh, support, anything like that, guidance counselor even. So for me, if I had someone like Melinda in my office, that's one of the things we'd be working on is helping her to build her, we could think of it as confidence, but really her ability to self-advocate whatever her needs are, you know, in her day-to-day life, being able to both identify those needs and communicate them if she needs, you know, assistance or support in addressing those needs. So if she needs her parents to be patient with her because she's uh, depressed you know, being able to communicate that and, and whatever level she's, she's comfortable, you know, because it's not always about, have you told anyone that you've been raped? We don't have to immediately go to that level, but we can say, okay, I'm not feeling well. And she, she sort of starts to do that um, with her parents. You know, she sort of takes a sick day later on. That's when she starts to become more self-advocating is when she, it's like she initially, she fakes the sick day, but then she does actually have a temperature. I think it was like, how yeah. it played out. Yeah. So that was sort of interesting. But, you know, if she's not comfortable communicating any need whatsoever, and she's just sort of at the whims of her friends and parents, you know, basically, in some cases, using her, in some cases, just, you know, criticizing whether or not she's living up to their expectations. I mean, that's a tough way to go through essentially a year when we're following her, right? Yeah. And it's more for me, it's just even more tragic as the book goes on, she starts uh, remembering more and more about what happened the night of her rape. They're at a party that she got invited to. Now, keep in mind, this is the summer before freshman year. So just, I mean, they're they're 14 years old, probably. And uh, she has three beers, and I'm sure that's enough. And she's not feeling good. She goes out, and uh, a senior approaches her. This senior uh, kisses her and she immediately, you know, this is a great thing for her in this moment, but he quickly escalates it and uh, turns it into a situation you don't want to be in. But one of the things he does is he, he does cover her mouth and won't let her scream. Um, although she does get out, no, I don't want this. You know, she does say that. Yep. And, and my question about what's going on here is... So when this happens to somebody like this, and what broke my heart about when we get to the realization of what actually happens and, and see all the things that I just talked about, she sees this in her head, and, and she actually says, or thinks, was I raped? Question mark. And then that's when I realized, this is a 14-year-old girl. She has no idea what's going on. So she also has no idea how to tell anyone. So it's just like this double thing that's working up sadly onto her. How can we, I mean, I think it's happening now, but how can we like give our boys and girls like the tools to understand this kind of thing? If it were to happen to them, like what to do, you know? Because obviously there was never a, her dad never said, you know, if something happens to you, you have to tell me, you know, that kind of thing or her mom either. So I just don't know how you would go about doing that with a teenager because I got kids that are going to be teenagers coming up. And it's like, how do you sit down and tell them the realities of things and, and what you can do in reaction? 
Yeah. So it's, I mean, even the example you gave of, you know, if something happens to me, you have to tell me. It's like that even, even as I was listening to you say that, I was like, oh, I don't, I don't want to tell you anything <laughs> because, <laughs> because it's that feeling of like, I have to tell you what happens if I don't, what if it's not that big of a deal? What if I don't know how big of a deal it is? So it's this, it's this question. And even to your point with, with in Mel's case, she doesn't know if it was a rape, she doesn't know what to call it. And this is sort of very common too, that survivors will question what happened to them. They will question if they said no, if they said yeah. no hard enough. I was going to ask you, like, do survivors downplay the acts that happened? Unfortunately, yeah. And and this is through no fault of their own. It's, it's part of the culture as well, in which, you know, uh, survivors are not always believed. Survivors are, are told things like, you know, they were asking for it. What were they wearing? All these sorts of terrible questions that imply some fault on the survivor, right? Yeah. Um, and that's when, when people experience these sorts of terrible events, doesn't immediately go to something bad happened to me. Uh, this was done to me, and I am going to report this behavior. It's, oh, no, you know, what did I do? What have I yeah. done? Was I drinking too much? Yeah, yeah. Mel's like, I was drinking, and yeah. I'm not supposed to be. And Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, so so it's a, it's a really hard situation, and that's, you know, part of the work as the therapist is, again, sort of this this rebuilding of the person's autonomy that they can own the experience in the sense that they were not asking for it. And, and if they they decided not to tell anybody, that is their decision whether or not to tell anyone. It's their decision if they want to press charges. It's their decision if they want to confront the person. Um, it's their decision if they want to tell their parents, all these sorts of things. You know, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough process to go through, but and, and Mel sort of go, goes through it in a lot of ways on her own that she gets to this place where she feels like she does need to speak. She does need right. to share how she's feeling. But, you know, if she had the support of, you know, even a guidance counselor, it's interesting because I was reading back, there was the one experience where she was, um, I think, dissecting a frog. And as she was cutting into the frog, she had this sort of flashback. Yeah, I was wondering about that scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she has this flashback and, and as she's flashing back, she passes out. So she passes out, she goes to the school nurse and she she asks herself or she's just her inner thoughts. She basically says, you know, if the nurse can see my thoughts, will she call the cops? You know, the implication being that if anyone knew what she was thinking or what happened to her, not would somebody take care of her, but would it become a problem for her? Would there be consequences for her? Right, right. Because because she tried calling the cops and look yeah. what happened. Yeah. And then she says, you know, would she send me to the nut house? Do I want her to? So it's this this ongoing self-questioning of what should happen, what should I do, what do I need? And and the doubt is so damaging. And, and honestly, the shame that comes with it. Not that not that a survivor should be ashamed, but that shame so often does come with this experience. Right. And and I just want to say, uh, and this is my anger coming out. Yeah, yeah. Is I don't care who you are. I don't care where you are. I don't care how much you had to drink or how little you had to drink or what you were wearing or what friends you were with. It doesn't matter. If someone does something to you, you have nothing to do with that. That was their choice alone. There, you, have, you cannot control someone else's mind and body. Your shirt doesn't do that. The beer in your hand doesn't do that. 
So it just pisses me off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that's that's what we're seeing now, you know, whether it's with the, you know, the Me Too movement or sort of, you know, believe all women, all these sorts of powerful movements, powerful ideas that people should be believed at the outset. Not because, you know, we think people are just going to make up stories um, about, you know, perpetrators, but because if we have the assumption that people will be believed from the beginning, that gives survivors the opportunity to feel that even if they doubt what happened, they should still report it because they will be believed. And then the rest of the stuff could get sorted out. Yeah. Believe it now, sort it out later. You've said that before, actually. Yeah, yeah. Because it's it's true, you know. I just I just wish that you know for for my patients, you know, the people who have experienced these things, that that if they had the 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 belief, the reassurance that society, that people, that their parents, that their schools would accept their story at face value and would not, you know, um, you know, question them or that they would receive consequences or all these other things that would happen as a result of them coming forward. I just, you know, it's it's it's. It's terrible, but yeah. I think it's I think it's changing gradually. I mean, this 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 initial story came out 20 years ago. And actually, Mike, I don't know if you know this, but the author, um, Lori Anderson, recently came out and said that she was raped at, I think, 14 or 15. Hmm. So this story, while not necessarily based on her own experiences, is something that she did experience. She could draw on from. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and actually, I think. um just put out a book of, I guess, poetry and, and prose. Um, I want to say it's called Shout, but a lot of it's about these sort of same themes of yeah. you know being able to speak out for yourself. One of the most like touching parts of the book for me, uh, but also that gave me questions, was when she starts kind of flashing back a lot, uh, and not in that pass out way, but she goes into a, a few memories of when she was younger with her parents, when her parents were still in love and not arguing and yelling, uh, there's a scene in an apple tree. Uh, and it kind of makes you tear up a little bit because it's like she has this, like, this want just to be back in that apple tree, you know? Uh, and I was wondering if that, uh, across what you've seen, or do you see people that are trying to go back in the past before these things happened to them, before, you know, things were bad? constantly trying to tell themselves like if i can go back then i can change it yeah it's tough i mean you know as we identified mel is definitely depressed i think what what i noticed more with her experience is that it relates to the past especially with her parents is that she while yes she thought about those past pleasant memories she was also having thoughts like you know they'd be divorced now if she hadn't been born that she's sort of recognizing the 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 negative relationship or the negative interactions that they have with one another. And yes, even if there were good things in the past that she is, she can't, but help see the the negative relationship that it's become. Um, and that's definitely contributing to her depression as well. This sense of fault that she's at fault for somehow contributing to the negative relationship her parents have. Hmm. So it's just a really terrible situation. All right. So I had a weird one for you. Sure. Um, have you have you ever worked with someone because I, I think I know how hard I know I know how hard it is to tell something that's happened to you. And I know how hard that is. 
have you ever had someone that did come seek help and they just couldn't tell you what was going on? But you being the experienced therapist that you are kind of figured it out along the way, but they still had problems and maybe you had to help them get there. So, yeah. So um, let me see if I understand your question. I, and and I, I want to say yes. Um, and that is, I don't have a patient doesn't have to tell me the details of whatever traumatic experience they've experienced mm-hmm. for us to be able to process and work through what that experience had on them, okay. um, what, what the impact was. So, yes, I've had people tell me something really bad happened to me um, when I was a kid. And I'll tell them, you know, you can tell me if you want, but if you're not ready or if you don't know if you want to, you don't have to tell me what it was. Okay. And that over time, because really what that's about is is establishing trust for me as a therapist. I, I want the the person to to feel comfortable and that they don't have to reveal every part of themselves, especially early on in treatment, because, well, frankly, in evaluations, we ask, you know, have you ever experienced anything traumatic? And sometimes we'll get like a sideways look or, um, well, yeah, but I don't know that kind of answer. And it's like, okay, you don't have to share it for now. We'll just kind of say, uh, yes, but no details. And that's totally fine. Yeah. Um, because we want to establish that relationship as being one that the person has control over their information and over their experiences. That it's not me, the therapist, dictating that we can't move forward until you tell me your story <laughs> because that wouldn't work. Right, right, right. Well, I guess that's not exactly what I meant is like you like stopping it until you get it. What I meant was just that you you had someone in and you knew they had something to say and you knew you were going to have to work to it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not psychic. Um as much as I wish I was. I I can't Dang necessarily. It, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> But when you work with enough people, you start to see similar experiences, you start to see patterns. So when people maybe allude to things that have happened for them, you know, yeah, I would say we start to have like a certain therapist spidey sense about these things for sure. Yeah. The experience. And, and, and yeah. And then, and, and certainly we don't have to push it. We don't have to make it this thing that we have to talk about. I mean, you and I were talking about EMDR again, you know, before the session where, you don't have to talk about the events, the traumatic events themselves. You can just talk about the feelings, the negative associations that come up and the healing can still happen. Okay. So I just think that's really powerful. So, um, so there's just, there's multiple ways to go about it. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Uh, one of the most just frightening aspects of this graphic novel was Andy Evans, the rapist, and he he shows up and he goes to Meriwether. He's a senior at the same high school. And she is so scared of him. She ends up getting into a little room. She finds an old janitor closet and it's like her hideaway that she goes to when she's overwhelmed or even skipping. But what happens with Andy is he starts showing up. But as the novel progresses, Andy starts showing up more and more. Instead of every 15 pages, he's on every, you know, 10, and then it just keeps popping up. But my big thing and the just nightmarish factor around Andy was he wasn't just in the hallways or in the background. He was intimidating her on purpose. He, at one point, came up and pulled the back of her hair. He asked her to take a bite of something that he was holding. He blew in her ear. Makes me so mad 
I just can't understand someone like Andy Evans. Yeah, well, we don't we don't get a lot of background on him. Um, you know, he reminds me of the character from 13 Reasons Why, where there's just sort of no consequences for this guy. He's popular. He's entitled. He does what he wants. He takes what he wants, as far as we can tell, without repercussion. So whether he's got, you know, narcissistic tendencies or sociopathic tendencies, it's hard to tell. He's very easily identified as a bully. You know, these things that he's doing, these sort of like micro assaults, you know, pulling hair, you know, sort of suggestive behaviors are are just incredibly, I mean, talk about PTSD, incredibly difficult for someone in Mel's situation to have to be around him, even if even if he never talked to her, just knowing that he was in that environment would be difficult enough. But the fact that he comes by and touches her or tries to interact with her, I mean, it's a nightmare. Well, that just got me thinking, you, you said PTSD. So survivors, ones that get help or don't get help, and by help I mean therapy or anything like that, counseling guidance, uh, what is what is like long term look like for them? Like, how is things going to go for them as far as are they always going to be this like drawn back person that has this guard up? Do we see people that just just defeat this demon that's inside them and are able to then to kind of like return to themselves? Yeah. So similar to, to things like depression and anxiety, there are certainly uh, coping skills and uh, work in therapy, even medication that can be done to address some of the symptoms of PTSD, whether that be things like um, hypervigilance or social anxiety or even really difficult sleeping bad dreams, things like that, which are often um, symptoms that can can last for a long time. So what you're looking at in terms of that long-term recovery is sort of what I was talking about before, which is this sort of rebuild of feeling competent and feeling confident and feeling like you can advocate for your needs in a way um, that's not going to get you in trouble. That's not going to cause problems for you. That's not going to get you assaulted. Right. Um, are there any certain feelings that hang on to like the actual situation or the person that did this to them that like make that harder to get to like vengeance or revenge? Um, oh, so I wasn't thinking about that angle necessarily, although certainly anger can can be a problem. I would say that the, what I often see, which is more the, the depressed side, is this the self-worth that gets taken away because you go from seeing yourself neutrally or even positively as she was going to this party, probably, right? Um, excited to be there on some level. And then after this happens to her, you know, the the worth that she has, you know, she's supposed to draw a tree and she can't even draw like a, a an actual tree with leaves on it. Everything is like dark. And, and I think that's a representation of how she feels about herself. Yeah, absolutely. You know, she, she makes the really sort of creepy sculpture um, yeah. with bones and the Barbie head with a tape over it. And yeah. I think, again, this is how she feels about herself, that there's just like nothing left of her. Yeah, she can't even look at herself yeah. in the janitor's closet. She covers up uh, the yeah, mirror she, with Maya Angelou. Yeah, so I think this this really, really defeated self-worth is is one of the biggest barriers to, you know, to sort of overcoming some of those depressive, depressive and PTSD symptoms, for sure. Hmm. Yeah, so as I was saying, you know, she, she does start to rebuild some of this self-worth, though. You know, she starts to develop sort of like a very light crush on a friend, uh, David. 
Yeah. You know, she she's she stands up for herself in refusing to give the the um the presentation in one of her classes. In Mr. Next class. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so so she's she's building, 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 and you you suddenly see her kind of wake up and want to tell uh Rachel or Rochelle. Oh yeah, that's that's right. She also starts to get better at, at with the tree in art class. Yeah, yeah. So she finally gets determined that she wants to tell Rachel. Although, you know, the unfortunate part of this is now Rachel is dating Andy, uh, it, the beast. Yeah, and she's oblivious to what's happened to Melinda. Mm -hmm. So she's just dating him and has no idea, like, what kind of guy that this guy can be. Right. So she builds up the courage to to tell her that she was raped and that it happened at this party. And that's why she called the cops. Um, and Rachel is, is starting to say, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Why didn't you tell me? You know, Melinda says she couldn't tell anybody. You know, Rachel asks who did it. And then she says, Andy. And then Rachel's immediate response to that is, is liar. Yeah. And this is, again, one of the biggest fears for survivors is that they won't be believed even by their best friends. I mean, Rachel's not necessarily her best friend at this point in the story, but is it is she was at one point very close to her. And it's just a complete rejection. It is complete rejection. But what we do see and it's and it's kind of the light side is this is that for Melinda, that's all she had to do was get that written down on that piece of paper. The reaction to her was secondary. Because very shortly after, she has a thought and she says, I feel like a seed and I'm beginning to grow again. And she starts coming out of her shell. Just she finally she finally spoke and said what has been weighing on her heart for the entire school year. And and it gets worse. Well, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, it gets worse before it gets better. Yeah, in some ways. So she starts to to sort of feel more confident. You know, there's prom things happen. And then she she finally decides that she doesn't need her little safe closet cave anymore. So she goes in there to start clean cleaning it out. And for us as a reader, it's like, oh, this is so great. Like she doesn't need to hide anymore. She can just be out in in public and, and right. talk to people and share with people. And move on. Yeah. 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 And then while she's in there. Yeah. Andy Evans comes in. Yes. He, he had just been broken up with by Rachel because Guess what? He groped Rachel at prom. Rachel told him no, and he kept doing it. And so she saw the truth. And so he storms into the janitor's closet where Melinda is. He calls her ugly. He locks the door. And he's going to do it again. He's going to do it again. To, to For whatever reason, people like this need to do these things. He's there to, he's there to hurt her again. Her literal worst nightmare. Yes. She says it a couple times in the novel. Uh, mm -hmm. Is he going to hurt me? Yeah. And, but now we have a little bit of a grown and uh, different Melinda. And as he's starting to pin her down, things are building and building. Uh, he said something like, I didn't rape you. You didn't even scream the first time. Yep. I mean, ugh, how furious that makes me. But that's when. She does scream and, you know, she says no. And there's like 50 O's after it. Mm -hmm. And she punches him in the face and they get into like a literal fight. Yeah. And she's fighting with everything in her. And then people bust into the room. Andy's seen for what he really is. She's standing there doing what she had wished she had done from the beginning. 
or, yep. or or not wish he had done, but didn't know what to do. Well, well, right. I'm well, well, really, it's it's she doesn't care about being heard anymore. It's like she's going to speak up whether she's heard or not. And she so she says no. And then she says, call the cops. So it's a, the fact that she's able to, again, like broadcast that for, for lots of people to hear is so significant because it's like, he, you know, this happened, this happened again. And I'm not, I'm not letting this go. I'm not going to be this, this, you know, person who just sort of doesn't say anything anymore. I'm not going to take it anymore. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So then, you know, we see this sort of glimmer of hope at the end of the story now that, you know, it's summertime and maybe things will be different for her going forward. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the, the tough thing for me is we don't see what happens with her parents after that second no. incident. I mean, we could assume that if she was almost assaulted at school, that her parents would find out about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and thus subsequently would find out about the initial one as well. I guess I would love to to know what happened or, or even what happened to the author and even her own personal experience, if that's why she wrote it this way. But but yeah, it's it's still going to be a long road for her. I was going to say that it seems like, like we were saying earlier, Melinda being her age, saying, was I raped? She was confused about things. But even so, in real life, this this can happen to an adult and they might still be confused about things. You know, the, the definitions shouldn't matter, frankly, when yeah. it comes to this stuff. If if someone touches you or does something to you without your specific consent, then that is assault. That's that's unacceptable. And you have every right to not only defend yourself, but to report said incident in whatever way you see fit. So, I mean, that it's a, it's a really hard thing because, you know, sometimes I'll see patients who let's say something happened to them uh, weeks, months, or years ago, and they're just telling someone for the first time. And it's like, okay, you know, now that I'm um, reporting this, like, what do I want to do? I don't even know. Do I want to get that person in trouble? Do I want to call the cops? Do I want to tell my parents? And it's a, it's a tough decision. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, it's tough to the point where you would think to yourself, do I want to go through the embarrassment, you know, cause then, then people will know that something yeah. happened and right. then, uh, people that know. And I guess it's sad know. that, you know, I, I, the way that you put it, even it's sad that that would be the assumption. That's like, if I report it, do I have to go through the embarrassment that I have to be embarrassed about reporting something that was done to me? You know, if anything, reporting that is is such an incredible uh, display of strength and courage that you should not have anything to be embarrassed about. It should be, look, you know, uh, this person did this thing to me and I did what I was supposed to do, quote unquote, right. was supposed to do. I reported it. You know, I defended myself uh, in whatever way I deemed fit. Um, I'm not embarrassed by that. I did, you know, what I had to to protect myself. People seem to, uh, A, feel like it's their fault always it's like the thing but then yeah. uh will be embarrassed by what actually happened and not think it was anything that could be turned in yeah it's just it gets so complicated in people's minds and and then they think well what if anyone finds out you know and it's just this whole it's like social um it's yourself it's too much yeah it is and and that's why you know getting support in whichever ways 
um, a survivor is comfortable is really important, whether that's therapy, um, support groups, family uh, support, school support, you know, whatever level of support you're open to, you're comfortable with, you know, being able to take advantage of those resources is just so incredibly important because you don't want to feel like you can't speak to anyone. So having those resources available to you and using them um, goes a long way towards rebuilding some of these things that get taken from you in an assault situation like this. Okay, uh, last thing, Ryan, is if you were to recommend as a dad and as a therapist uh, and as a Ryan, would you what would you recommend to somebody that has an attack on them and um, something like this happens? what would you recommend their first week be? Like if like best case scenario, this is what I would like somebody to do in this period of time. It's a it's hard question um, because there's, there's no uh, like universal, this is what you should do no matter what, because there are so many complicated aspects to this. Yeah. So I guess all I want to say is if a person and I actually think that the way Melinda handled it initially is is was not just admirable, but was a, a great first step, right? She called the cops. There was no questioning. There was no self-doubt. It was, this just happened to me. I, I need to do something. So she did. Now, it didn't go well, yeah. but that doesn't take away from the fact that she advocated for herself. So, you know, aside from that, I guess... I would certainly hope that uh, a survivor of a, an experience like this would feel comfortable telling someone. Yeah. It doesn't have to be, you know, uh, it doesn't have to be the cops. It doesn't have to be uh, family necessarily. But but find someone that you trust. Find someone that you're comfortable with that you will not feel judged by and use that resource to whatever degree you're comfortable. If you need to test the waters, you know, right. by saying something bad happened to me and, and sort of gauging that person's reaction, you know, do that. But, you know, as we said, you know, going off this book, the silence doesn't solve anything. Right. But at the same time, you know, and that this is why this is such a tough question, because if you do, uh, let's say, work with a perpetrator or you're, you're around them every day, there is going to be fear involved with if I report them, are they going to come after me? Am yeah. I going to be in more danger? Yeah, for sure. That's, that's why there's no universal answer to this, that you do in some ways have to be careful. But that's why you can absolutely seek support as that sort of first step so that you do have you do sort of have backup with ever yeah. which with with whatever next steps you want to take. Yes, and and I love that because what can happen in that that seeking out a support person like immediately what can happen is is all the things that you're thinking in your head and all the fears and everything someone who is not emotional like as you are in that moment can help give you feedback and help guide you to the right and if it's me I'm going to I'm going to tell you I hope we can call the police, but it's your decision. I would absolutely. That's up to you. But like, I'll say that these things are not um, wrong to do. Like, this is a decision you can make, and it's not a wrong decision. So forth and so on. Right, because it's really about um, you know giving the the survivor the autonomy to handle the situation however they want to. Because I think a lot of times the 
Like the wrong thing is like, well, you have to call the cops because what if this guy does this again? Don't you think about the other possible victims in the future? And it's like that again is this guilt and shame thing. And we can't, we can't have that. That's not going to make the situation easier for survivors. So that's why there's no universal answer to this question. Um, But absolutely seeking support. So to your point, we don't hear from the story whether or not Melinda, I guess she didn't go to the hospital, you know, no, you know, maybe there was some level of support she needed there that she didn't get. So maybe there, you know, there are certainly intermediate steps that don't have to result in, you know, cops and pressing charges and all these sorts of things. So, so being able to play out all of those options with someone who you trust and someone who can support you in those decisions is just really important. Yeah. My wish for her would have been, you know, if she could have told anyone other than the cops. And I guess that wasn't entirely clear either. Maybe it's in the novel, but did did she actually report like did No, she's she's she froze. She ran or she froze, right? Yeah. Okay. So she didn't actually follow through on the reporting of the stuff to the cops after the call. Yeah. That's tough. Yep. It's a hard one. Yeah. Yeah. So with that, let's let's talk about our ratings for this this impactful story. Yeah. Uh, it's 20th anniversary. <laughs> All right, all right. Okay, guys, we're doing our ratings. If you haven't watched the show before, we always rate on a one to five scale. Ryan rates one to five for accuracy of what we're covering, and I rate one to five on how much I like it. Ryan, what you got this week? So on um, this week, I'm doing one um, out of five wombats because that was my oh, favorite. Um, we didn't talk we didn't, about that. We didn't talk about the the several times changed <laughs> school mascot. I like the hornets. Uh, well, I, yeah, I, I just the Wombats are also a great band for anyone who doesn't know. But this was this had a, a personal uh, touch of familiarity to me because my high school's mascot, Mike, are you ready for this? Um, I went to St. Rose High School in, in New Jersey and we were the St. Rose Purple Roses. Oh, my God. <laughs> so... Um, that's but we had thorns. That's sort terrible. Of like the, <laughs> that's yeah, so it bad. is terrible. It's really bad. Um, so, I, you know, I think if we had any sense of ourselves, we would have petitioned to change ourselves to the wombats or hornets, but no such luck. <laughs> so that being said, back to the story. This is a five out of five for me. It's, a, it's an incredible story. Uh, devastating, but for me hits everything on the head in terms of accuracy. Um, It's certainly sad in that it's accurate. It's sad that her parents and school, you know, don't offer her the support that she so clearly needs. But we can hope that 20 years since this book has been written, schools are a little bit more adept at at, at noticing the signs and and hopefully parents and teens are, are more prepared to advocate and when needed. So five out of five for me. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So I'm going to be doing one out of five hair women's, her English teacher, the hair woman. So mm-hmm. she had lots of big hair and uh, it was very funny to Melinda about her hair. So it was very funny to me. All right. Um, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to do this one a 4.5 out of five. We did the graphic novel and it was the art was awesome. The story was devastating and... The just even the scenes back when she was a little kid had me tearing up. Just, uh, I mean, I just felt so bad for her, and it was so real how it just how a teenager would deal with this a 14 year old who never, you know, never even had sex and is didn't even know what rape was. 
Um, so it hit me really, really, really hard. Uh, the whole book did, and I'm glad that she got her power to speak back. So yeah, like it definitely hit hard. Um, but also it it nailed high school. Mm-hmm. Like uh, I really liked that they went through all the they, she had classes and we yep. got to know the teachers. Spanish mm-hmm. teacher, English teacher, her crazy American history teacher. Art teacher, yeah. Yeah, so we got we got all that. It just felt like high school. So 4.5, and it wasn't a 5 because I feel like the book would have been a little better than the graphic novel. Well, well yeah, so, so for anyone who follows along with us, feel free to read the graphic novel or the original novelization or see the movie with Kristen Stewart. Lots of different, <laughs> lots of different angles on this story. Yep, yep, yep. All right. All right. We're going to get out of here for the day. Do not forget to stick around for Ryan's closing thoughts. But first, we have to thank Kevin McLeod for all the music we use on the show. You can find Kevin and his royalty-free music at incompetech.com. Ryan, thanks for talking with me every week. Thank you, sir. And now for some closing thoughts on the 2018 graphic novel, Speak. First of all, as we talked about on the episode, surviving sexual assault or rape can bring with it a host of complicated emotional and even physical symptoms. Even though it can be scary to speak up about these experiences, there are resources available to those willing to take that first step. Therapy is one such resource that's available. If you are worried someone you know might have been the victim of sexual assault or rape, the best thing you can do is validate their experience and their choices. You may want to call the cops or make them go to the hospital, but it is so important that they be empowered in making these decisions. If they can trust you enough to share their experience, know that that is a great first step and that it's important that that decision does not result in negative consequences for them. Finally, here are some national resources to check out for more information. RAIN.org, that's R-A-I-N-N dot org or Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, is the nation's largest anti-sexual violence organization, and it operates the National Sexual Assault Hotline, which can be reached by dialing 800-656-HOPE. That's 800-656-4673. You can also reach out to the National Sexual Violence Resource Center at www.nsvrc.org. And you can also go to endrapeoncampus.org, which offers direct support for survivors and their communities. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Thank you, as always, to my co-host and executive producer, Mike Graham. If you like the show, please check out our social media pages. We are everywhere at poppsych101. We also love hearing from our listeners. So if you want to give us feedback or suggest something for us to cover, you can email us at poppsych101 at gmail.com or join our Facebook group. Pop Psych 101 is now on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us share these discussions about mental health, please leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe wherever you listen. For Mike Graham, I'm Ryan Engelstad. Thanks for listening to Pop Psych 101.